Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming to you live from Tears of the Kingdom. Ah, fun. We also have Steve Edwards. Hello from somewhat sunny and beautiful Portland today. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have two guests. We have Aiden Bai. Aiden, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Aiden. I work on a project called MillionJS. Yeah, I'm actually really near Steve in Portland, but in Washington. Awesome. We also have Toby. Toby, do you want to introduce yourself too? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm Toby and I'm a software engineer and diversity for Million for the projects Million that we're talking about today. Awesome. Yeah, so let's dive in and talk about Million. Now, before we get too far in, it looks like it's a project and I couldn't quite, I didn't have time to play with it. It looks like it uh, ties into React. What problem are you all trying to solve with this? Because it seems like a lot of people using React and like it. So what's wrong with it, I guess? Right. And that's totally a valid thing, right? Like React is fast enough for most computers. That's why so many people use it, right? That's why Facebook uses it for their application. But sometimes you do hit performance bottlenecks. I mean, while do we do have tools that you like fix those, like memo or just higher, like ordering your components correctly, sometimes you do hit those performance bottlenecks that come with rendering. That's why solutions like Svelte or SolidJS exist to provide faster rendering of the user interface. And so this comes with really like um, data heavy or user interface heavy applications that you just can't Mm -hmm. optimize well with React. So effectively, what you're saying is, is you have a lot of stuff going on, it makes it slower. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, I don't know, it seems like people have been talking about this issue for a, a long time right? And not just with React. So I don't know, it seems like there are tips and tricks for optimizing React. Do those just not get you far enough down the road? Yeah, I mean, like, if you can use those tips and tricks, then you should use use those tips and tricks, right? The thing is, like, one thing about React applications is that you can write them really, really badly and also really, really great. And those really, really great applications Mm -hmm. perform really, really well. But also, if you, you know, put it all in like one app component, it's going to be like the worst performance of your life. And so that's the issue with React. You, it depends on your skill level. Using Million, there, there's mainly like two applications. One, it's like if you're low skill, then you could just kind of put that function in and it would just work for you. If it works, then you can have like, you don't have to worry about how do I construct my components well, which is not necessarily a good thing. You could do it you probably should make better React applications. But the second camp is like the the really like, I think if Dan was here, he would really, really relate is like the web performance camp. Like how can we make, mm-hmm. you know, how can I make like a highly interactive application that has a lot of data and a lot of UI that changes a lot and I want to serve it as fast as possible to my customers. And this could be in the form of stock pickers, like, you know, stock tickers or maybe a specific component, like a color picker. Okay. So what exactly do you provide then? Is this kind of a meta framework where you're breaking up, you're forcing people to break things up into smaller components because you mentioned that that could be the issue? Or does this kind of work under the hood to go, no, we're going to do things in a more intelligent way somewhere further down the chain? It's definitely the latter. So React uses something called the virtual DOM. It's just Mm -hmm. like, I'm sure you guys know, but just for the audience, the virtual DOM is like a blueprint. And you can use that blueprint to reference before you actually do any action. Like you don't want to break down a bridge before, before like if you measured it wrong or something. And so that's what the virtual DOM does. But there's a lot of you know computation costs. Like if you want to make a blueprint, you have to sketch out the entire thing. You have to determine the changes you want to make, and then you have to actually make that change. And so right. as your user interface gets bigger, as your component gets bigger, the more computation is needed to to you know that to make those changes. And so essentially, Million introduces something called the block virtual DOM. It's very similar to the Svelte like, methodology of approaching it. Essentially, we can turn the, like a component and we can determine where the dynamic parts of the component are. For example, if you have like a counter component, the count and the event listener are the dynamic parts. Um, and so we can perform surgical updates to those dynamic parts to make those updates. So essentially, we don't need to diff the user interface we diff the data instead. Wait, so go a little deeper mm-hmm. on that. The, the the differences in what you're diffing and why did React start the way that it did? What was what was the thing that it hoped it was going to do? Why did it not work out? And why did you find this? How did you find a secret that they can't implement? Like, why is this not already in God? Okay. Before React. React uses the virtual DOM in order to fulfill their mental model. Right. That right. state is a function of user interface. 
And the only way, one of the ways to achieve that is the virtual dog. And it's very effective at achieving that because you don't need to think about how your data works. With things like signals, you have to like think about, okay, how does my data go into the UI? With virtual DOM, mm-hmm. you just blow the UI away and you get a new UI, right? And so this has been really effective for React. I'm sure that's why it's gained a lot of popularity. It's just great developer experience. The block virtual DOM introduces something a little bit different where it analyzes the virtual DOM as more of a template instead of a blueprint. And what I mean by that is it follows like view-like or svelte-like methodologies in order to optimize that. And that comes with constraints, right? One of the main constraints is it's not very dynamic. One of the things virtual DOM is really good at is like you can compare very, very different views with each other. For example, if you have like a like a counter view, or like, this is not a great example, like a to-do view, and you also have, you want to switch to like a image. The virtual DOM can do those diffs very, very easily and make an efficient update. But with things like signals or templates or, or these various solutions, it's not as efficient because you have to replace the entire user interface instead of diffing it. And so the React team sticks with the virtual DOM for good reason. It's very flexible. It's generally good enough for applications. But when you hit that, you know, n- you know, that threshold, when you do need that performance, that's when templates really matter. Or that's when the block virtual DOM matters. Or that's when million matters. So, yeah, I mean, just looking at this, initially when you were explaining it, I was thinking about signals because signals effectively what you do is you say, and it's not, how do I put it? It's not observables, but effectively what it does is you change the data and then it just goes and changes where it needs the data changed. And so in a lot of cases, that's way more performant than a virtual DOM that, yeah, does, if there are a lot of diffs, it, it can take it a minute to calculate what, what it needs to change. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're kind of going somewhere in the middle where it's not this direct value, but it's this very small chunk of the UI and it intelligently updates it in a way that you don't have that big calculation cost every time you have a change on the virtual DOM. Is, is, is that right? Exactly. It's like, it's kind of like the best and the worst of the both worlds. Essentially, when the, the worlds are signals and virtual DOM, where signals, you have to think about your data, but it's really fast. And the virtual DOM, you don't mm-hmm. have to think about your data, but it can be slow sometimes. This is kind of like a median. You don't need to think about your data, but there are the constraints of signals and templates. And it's also a virtual DOM at the same time. And so it tries to find like a compromise between the two. I gotcha. So are you replacing the virtual DOM with the block DOM or? Well, it depends. So for example, if you, we have like a block utility, essentially you wrap a component in a block function and it becomes a higher order component you can use in your application. Mm -hmm. This higher order component uses the million virtual DOM. Everything else in your application uses the React virtual DOM. Essentially, it's an opt-in utility you can use. One of the main advantages is that you don't, like, it's essentially, you only use million if you need it, right? You know, like, generally, people, when, like, developers are facing performance problems, they kind of know where the performance is. And so this is like Mm -hmm. a, you can just plug it in and it just works. In In the technical, like, how it works underlying, it essentially just, Imagine as if it makes a dummy component and in this dummy component, it just tells React, stop rendering here. This is my responsibility now. And then it takes that rendering and it puts like million renders into that component instead. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to add, that was my next question actually was, in my experience, React doesn't play nice with other stuff monkeying with the DOM, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, if you kind of put a fence around it and say, React, don't worry about this stuff, then... Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, like... Compared to solutions like React Signals, which does also work in React, it's less intrusive because it was a common pattern. There used to be something called uncontrolled elements or uncontrolled components where you would have like DOM manipulations inside like class components. And essentially, this is a similar methodology we're using here. With React Signals, you're like monkey patching the JSX, right? Or like monkey patching the virtual node creator. Which is like, okay, but also, you know, they're, they're having issues with that. So do I just install it and that's it? Or are there other things that I need to do in order to make this fly in my React app? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have both a compiler and a runtime. So the first thing is you install the package, but also we have to integrate with your bundler. So it could be Webpack, V, or if you're using a meta framework, Next.js or Astro. And so it is, right, like in principle, it is as simple as integrating the compiler, installing it, but in like using the block functions when you need it. But I do have to like note that 
for our meta frameworks, there are certain like bugs we're facing right now. <laughs> so it's a little bit experimental if you want to use it right now. I'd be interested to know um, what what kind of challenges are you facing with that? Why is why are you having bugs with the meta framework integration? Yeah. So the runtime is really constrained. By it's it's by design, it's really hard to achieve a good compromise between the two. That's why that's why most people don't do that. Like there are projects like BlockDom. Actually, Million was directly inspired by projects like BlockDom that do that, but it's just really hard to strike that balance. And so the runtime is very constrained. And the purpose of the compiler is not only to optimize the template, but also try to give more functionality to it, be able to make it very flexible. And what I mean by that is blocks, the runtime requires stateless components. And so Components cannot cannot have state, but our compiler allows for that. It allows you to put hooks into your components and actually use them. And so it's really challenging because static analysis is hard. <laughs> like I, right. I've had like using that. Yeah, it's like you have to think of so many edge cases and actually like work with users and test it in production and see what their issues are facing. Or not production, but like you know in real applications. And so there's a lot of edge cases to hit and also a lot of edge cases to fill. It just seems like with the static analysis, if you're using using meta frameworks, right, they add their own layers of things on top. And so, yeah, I could imagine that picking out their tokens might be a challenge. Yeah, it's actually, in principle, it's just a Babel plugin. So the meta framework just runs the compiler when it needs it. So essentially... Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's it's not. Yeah. It's not too hard unless the meta framework does something weird like like remix. But <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> it's fine. No call out. I think I think remix is cool. It's just that it's very hard to integrate with. Yeah. Um, one of the other challenges. Tell, tell us more. Why Why is remix hard to integrate with? What's, sure. What's special yeah. about what it's doing that conflicts with what you're doing? We're actually working on this issue currently, but essentially every major tool like Next.js or Webpack or Next.js like. It provides like an override. Essentially, you can have configure a Webpack plugin. I'm sure you guys tried it before. The audience has tried it before. Essentially, there's like a Webpack property, and you can integrate those, you know, plugins in, into it, and that's great. But the thing is, Remix doesn't use that. It's super weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it uses ES Build under the hood, which accepts plugins, but it doesn't allow you to put plugins into it. And so there are solutions like ES Build Override, but it's like not a you know idiomatic solution for the problem. And I think it's an interesting philosophy, but also every major framework, Next.js, Astro, Gatsby, has a plugin integration. And so that makes it really hard for us to you know compile stuff. Another thing is like. Our runtime is very, it, it runs client APIs on the global level. And so with meta frameworks, they run React with SSR or server-side rendering. And the issue with that is server-side rendering doesn't have DOM APIs. And so when you hit those issues, you can't import the runtime. And so remember how we have like the component that just tells React not to render? We have to add an extra loader layer on that where we load the package at runtime instead of SSR. And so it's a little, it's quite complicated in that sense, trying to skirt around SSR and limitations. Okay, well, do you think that with the approach you're taking, is SSR even, are these solutions that you should be trying to use together? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good question, right? Like, I assume a lot of the use cases in this field are more interactive, like applications. And interactive applications generally have very interactive data. So it's hard to SSR into or use like an SSR solution or like just loading stuff before instead of loading at the client. I think it's something that is enough of a low-hanging fruit to handle though. Essentially, this sort of approach is required whether we do SSR or no SSR. It's just whether we want to support it or not. But it is it is like also not an easy approach to take. And as, as you guys said, right? React and Next are just not fun to work with and not to their fault, but it's just very hard to integrate very, you know, like our, our use case is quite like weird in a sense. And so it's it's very hard to get great solutions to support it. So you're talking about Remix and Next, but do all of the other React ecosystem, I'm thinking like Gatsby or Preact or 
what other ones are there. I can't even think of them all. But do they, do you play nicely with those? Is it just these handful that are weird or do they all get weird? Right now, they're all pretty weird, but we do support all okay. the, the ones you mentioned. Okay. They're like every major framework you can think of, we probably support it except for Dino. Okay. Yeah, it's just like we're still, you know, it's it's really early. We're still ironing out solutions, but it's definitely something cool to try if you're interested. Yeah, um, one thing is we've actually also been talking about Dino support with, um, if you guys heard of AlephJS, it's kind of like a meta framework for React and Dino, which is really cool. But figuring out, <laughs> we're already trying to figure out like <laughs> over five meta frameworks and different, like we're trying to support React at the same time and also support another runtime. It's it's a lot of work, but Why? yeah. I've seen a lot of projects really go downhill as they try to get outside of what they're good at, right? So there's, I, there's a project that's excellent called SQL C. Have you heard of that one perchance? I have not. So what they do is the smartest thing that anybody has ever done in regards to SQL, which is that you write the SQL queries and then it generates the code. Mm -hmm. And they have uh, a JSON output, which I think adding that was a good idea. But they started out with Go and then they wanted to add Java and then they wanted to add Python and then they wanted to add C Sharp and then they wanted right. to add MySQL and then they wanted to add SQLite. And, and the projects become diluted because now you know, what I wanted was something that was really, really great for Postgres. And I would have been happy to pay for that. I think that's another thing that goes, I think in the open source world, there's too much. People don't think that they can get value for their work. And so instead they want clicks and likes and views. Mm -hmm. And they neglect that the people are willing to pay for really, really good solutions. So I think, I mean, if you're feeling like you're spreading too thin, I just stick to the things that are best that you, the customers that you already have mm -hmm. that already like your product, like it. Cause I, I think if you, if you try to, one thing is people, the people that are requesting more features. That's that's kind of like an excuse of saying, I don't want your product. Like when a girl mm -hmm. doesn't want to go out with you and she says, I have a test on Tuesday, every Tuesday, right? The people right. that are asking for more features, a lot of times they're not real. They don't, you know, they don't even really like your thing. They just want it to be different. They just want to show that you're not good enough for them. So I, I think it's fine right. if, if it doesn't work with everything, because if it works with everything, it's not going to be good at anything. That's a great perspective, actually. Yeah, I've, I have been feeling that, you know, I'm assuming like every open source maintainer feels that or like any product, but like it's really... Yeah, I was just going to chime in and kind of agree with AJ. I know you didn't come on here to get our unsolicited advice, but yeah, you know, it does make sense once you have people using it saying, I'm using this for my React app, but now I would really like it in Next and you get enough of those to start. Okay, we'll add that in too, right? Or if you're getting, yeah. Anyway, just based on feedback. But I, I will tell you one thing that I'm interested in knowing is just how to get this added into my apps then. Is this something right. that I can just NPM install and then I'm done? Or so there you said go. there was a little more to installing million JS than just, yeah. just so NPM install. We do have like an installation page that talks about how to set up with your specific tool you're using, or if you're just using Create React app or something like that. We also have a quick start page which kind of gives you ideas on where and how to use Million. One thing we don't want is people just wrapping their app in one block. And while that is really convenient, right? There are caveats to using Million where there are, with any technology, with any tool, there are constraints and you have to work around those right. constraints to make performance well. Just like AJ said, use the tool where it's good. And so we kind of give you how to think in Million, essentially, um, just like a kind mm -hmm. of interactive guide on where to use Million, what certain edge use cases it works well and which cases it doesn't work well. We also have like a blog page. I can send you like the specific or like how we uh, like achieve this from a technical sense. And that also talks about some of the constraints of our approach. Um, one thing I'm really excited about though is the, I know probably to like most developers, it's it's not something that's that's going to be used or something to be excited about for them. And that's totally valid. But we introduced, like, we implement something called the Block Virtual DOM, which was introduced by a package called Block DOM. And it's it's something that's very interesting because traditionally we view Virtual DOM as very slow. We're like slow relative to other technologies. 
And you can see this in like the JS framework benchmark where the technologies like signals or, you know, spell are faster in comparison to React. And it's gotten a bad rap. Like, for example, with Svelte, uh, Rich Harris has written an article called Virtual DOM is Pure Overhead, criticizing, okay, where React is bad or there are certain mm-hmm. constraints to that. And it's really cool to see, you know, Virtual DOM's quote unquote making a comeback in this form. So this is kind of off in left field from what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. but what were you doing before you were doing React? Were you ever using other frameworks or have you have you tried other design patterns? What was it that brought you to say, I'm still going to use React, but I'm going to I'm going to change this core part of it rather than using something different that already exists or or just or just going lightweight. So before React, I got started with the like server rendering world where I had like a Node.js server with pug templates and I kind of augmented my HTML with HTMX and Alpine.js. And I was really happy with that solution. And I kind of, I even made my own Alpine.js. And that's kind of how I got started into the JS framework space. Like one reason I switched over to React was because I felt like HTMX these solutions were outdated just for me. They, they are very valid solutions. It's just for me, I didn't want to build applications with them anymore. Yeah, it was, but also a lot of the kind of ideas around HTMX and Alpine where how we can provide experiences that tailor to developers, but also make them pretty fast. Um, Alpine, I mean, Alpine is not fast for like, outside its use case, but within its use case, it's really great. It's kind of translated with Million, where you want to be really good at certain things that really help certain developers. I don't know, have you guys used HTMX or played with Alpine.js before? So I don't do front end. I, oh. I do libraries on the front I end. I do not do HTML and CSS. I, I stay as far away from those BZs as I can. <laughs> I seem to recall we did an episode talking about HTMX at some point. But I'll go find it and put a link in the show notes. Yeah, Dan would know off the top of his head. He's crazy like that. He knows every single one of our episodes by number, like instantly. But we've had both Alpine and HTMX talk yeah. on the show before. Well, and we actually had their creators talking, but you get the idea. Yeah. It would be creepy. Oh, that's really cool. Talking. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you see this going? You know, at the end of the day, you know, you start creating some of these solutions on your own, realize, hey, uh, there's a whole ecosystem in React. You kind of come back to doing the React stuff. Where does this end up at, right? Do do we just continue having React as our dominant framework at the end of the day with tools like Million.js speeding it up and making it easier to do the right thing with it? Or do we eventually have hop over to something else like one of the... Mm-hmm smaller, more lightweight frameworks that kind of give us 90% of what we need? Or are we looking at more full stack solutions where, you know, there's more back end and front end? We kind of get that a little bit with the server the server components. Like there are all these different things that are going on out there. And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, yeah, effectively, do we keep doing what we're normally doing with React with modifications that make it faster, easier, better? Or are we going to eventually have another paradigm shift, do you think? Right. I don't like to be bullish or bearish on technologies. I feel like uh-huh. you should use technologies if they're a good fit. And that's with your team, with okay. your project, with your constraints. But if I were to talk about it, um, React, React is doing a lot of cool stuff right now, mm-hmm. specifically with React Forget, which is like a compiler that can reduce the amount of re-renders that a component has. There's also off-screen rendering, which is like, what if we could render the user interface on the server and then serve it to the client? And also, you know, server components where we can simplify the data to user interface model and make everything react. And there's a lot of solutions, um, including Preact, which makes, you know, less bundle sizes, faster react. But yeah, I think fundamentally there are a lot of, there are a lot, not only a lot of great solutions, but a lot of solutions are ready for optimization with React. And some would say it is a bad thing. And in terms of choice, it can be like very paralyzing. But I think React is in a place, or like the React ecosystem is in a place where it's at a point where it, it's like there's a lot of innovation, which is really cool. There are a lot of good solutions. There are a lot of bad solutions. We just have to see what happens. Um, with Million specifically, there are also those two paths, right? Million can, we can figure out there is no product market fit or like there is no users at all. So just dies in the GitHub. Or there are a lot of users, a lot of people interested in using it. And, you know, we continue to sustain the, sustain the uh, growth and maybe some of the ideas can be proliferated into the ecosystem. But I think fundamentally, whatever happens with Million, I'm just happy or our project members happy. Like 
we're able to provide some reference to the community where whether it's a tr- like whether it's a good or bad idea, it can be a tried and true idea. It can be a reference for future libraries to see, hey, we should not take this approach or hey, we should take this approach. Um, I think this also applies to other ideas like signals or signals is pretty pri- tried and true, but like, uh, I don't know. Svelte or solid or whatever. Gotcha. Yeah. Also web performance, right? It's always good. Mm-hmm. I guess like from a like framework author perspective, it's always good to see new ideas. Maybe not for a developer perspective, because like you'll have to learn all these. Well, you don't have to learn it, but you feel like you have to learn all these new technologies like RSC, Oscar. Like I don't know, like most people don't zero idea what that means. I don't even know how that applies to me. I don't know the constraints. And you know what? That is totally okay. And if you feel that way, it is totally okay to feel that way. I like I feel that way, especially in like I literally work in React rendering and I still don't know like half the things that they're shipping out. But just know if you're like one of those people, there is it, it's for, like from my perspective, there is a lot of cool stuff happening. And maybe we can build eventually this can maybe help build cool solutions or better solutions for existing products. Because better solutions aren't built with stagnation or like sitting with existing solutions. It's built with a lot of trial and error. It's built with a lot of mistakes. It's, you know, it's built with a lot of experimentation. All right. Well, I'm, I think I've kind of exhausted my <laughs> areas of questions. Steve, AJ, do you have anything else you want to dive into? Not particularly. I mean, I, I primarily focus on Vue. So I haven't done a lot of, of React development. I mean, I understand... The virtual DOM and and uh, I was just listening to an old interview today with Rich Harris. You had mentioned him earlier mm-hmm. of Svelte fame, just talking about the virtual DOM and and why Svelte doesn't really use it. But uh, not being in the React world, don't really have a lot of experience or need for. Well, I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to implement Million JS with Vue as I understand it right now. Yeah, it's cool because I think Vue actually has their own like compiler, like. From what I understand, the methodology is similar to Million, where they have like they if you have like a I don't know, I forgot what the view model or V model thing in inside like inside your view template, it it can detect that dynamic part and mm-hmm. automatically optimize into virtual DOM. Yeah, there's so many learning. Actually, like I feel like one of the things about React is they for us, like in the React world, it's mostly like we we're like, hey, we invented a new thing. And use like, oh, we did this three years ago, <laughs> like with React, whether it was reactivity. <laughs> so it's like it's it's really it's really funny because in React land we think it's all cool, but use like, oh, we already had this for so many years. Yeah, yeah. Some things go the other way too. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's changed from view two to view three, if I remember right. And I'm not incredibly knowledgeable on the internals. I know that there's references to view trying to copy React in terms of I think it was the use of proxies and some more hooks like implementations mm-hmm. in view, but. So I think it goes both ways. And that's common across all the frameworks, right? They all cannibalize each other or copy mm-hmm. or whatever phrase you want to use, borrow from each other, shall we say. You know, and they see, hey, this looks cool that we could use a, a version of this in our framework to speed things up too. So definitely not uncommon. Yeah, always. I think it makes yeah. the whole ecosystem better because you have a good idea. Hey, we're going to use it over here. And then they have a good idea. Hey, we're going to use it over here. And yeah, I think I think overall it's a positive thing. So when I was younger, I was pretty good at predicting which technologies were going to succeed and fail. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten worse at that prediction because with age comes wisdom and with wisdom comes some lack of opti- uh, of optimism or maybe not with age comes experience with experience should come wisdom and with i think comes discernment and with discernment comes less optimism you don't think that everything's great you don't think that everything's going to succeed because you're you're discerning and discriminating so uh you look like y'all are pretty young and so i'm curious how how young you are when you started developing and how you feel like you what kind of feel of the winds or sense of trends do you get and and are you playing into the trends that you're seeing or are you going against the current with this kind of interested in that that social psychological perspective of the project totally yeah i just graduated high school and so yeah one of the things i get a lot is actually the, the like i remember we learned this concept you mentioned in AP government where it's like, I think it's called the life cycle or age gap, like effect or something like that, where generally speaking, uh, younger people are more liberal politically and older people are more conservative. And that comes with experience, right? Like, as you said, 
like for me, I tend to be more, I tend to be more excited about new things. One thing I, I, I noticed with a lot of developers is like, I can sometimes see like a, like a very rough correlation of like, okay, when I see like new technologies like RSC or signals, I feel like very excited about the topics. I, I tend to dig into them. I see many younger people in the community also do the same, where older people are more hesitant or more, they think about it a little bit more before they try it out, which is like, it's not a bad thing at all. I think we do need both sides, right? Technologies, we should it's like- the, It's the yin and the yang, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, you, it's the force of ruin and preservation. Exactly. <laughs> like we might've needed more older people during the crypto times, but uh, we're, we're gonna skip on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, for example, Node.js was something where I recognized it as actually being technically superior to existing solutions. I was only in my first year of college, but mm-hmm. I could tell from surveying the landscape because I was very, very, I, I went to every meetup at that time. I went to the Python meetup, the Ruby meetup, the the Unix or, or Linux meetup. I, I went to everything, right? And I could tell once I got, it wasn't the first introduction to Node.js because it was, it was a little, it was too much new information that I was dealing with because I'd only just started attending the Ruby meetup and they were, that's what they were talking about one of those times. But you know, I could, I could sense there was something about it that wasn't just hype. It wasn't just cool. It was useful. Mm-hmm. And I sensed the same thing about Go, but the difference between Node and Go is that there was already a hype train on jQuery and then Node was coming along on the table feathers of the jQuery hype train. And I knew that Node was going to succeed because I could see, well, there is no Go hype train for it to to catch on the tail feathers of. So Node is going to win this round. And and then uh, also there was a resurgence of one that comes back every 10 years called Erlang. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but every 10 years or so, people get super excited about Erlang and there's a new Erlang framework or derivative and everybody thinks that it's going to be like the next node or Mm -hmm. the next React or whatever. And then it never is, unfortunately, because there's a lot of good things about Erlang. But so anyway, just kind of that is like background. That's that's kind of where I'm... But then since then, I've looked at other technologies and I thought, okay, this one has ter- technical merit and this one really just doesn't have technical merit, but I haven't been as connected with the hype trains, why something would succeed over something else. And that's right. where I'm... You know, are you in spaces like that? Because mine's rational, but there's rational versus intuitive. And mm-hmm. a lot of people just they capitalize on just their intuition. So if you ask them to explain something, they actually oftentimes can't articulate it well, but they but their intuition is guiding them and they and they're still catching that wind or whatever it is. So do you, do you have a sense for like any of that kind of perspective? I, I don't know if that was actually helpful the way I explained it. I was just babbling, but No, no, no. I run with I it. understand. For me, I actually feel like I'm very bad at predicting technologies. I get lost in the details a lot where I really, really like certain technical things. And I'm sure, you know, like with, I know there's like a huge community around Elixir where it's like, oh, there's like concurrency and, and it's a very useful language, but I assume, you know, a lot of people are really stuck in the details of uh, Elixir and don't understand like the bigger aspects. Um, like you said, there there are hype or hype waves or that that kind of influence the adoption. It's not just like, like, rash, like rationality. Like one of the things that, I discovered with Million was at some point, like I spent like four months just learning about like how to do these running techniques. And it was just like super, super interesting to me. But at some point I realized it was like, it's great if I have like something very technically strong and like what's very nice and it's actually kind of useful for some things, but it's also like not super, like it hasn't actually used by anyone. So like for me, I I definitely also like to think about things rationally. I don't have a great intuition for things. And I also, when I think rationally, I think more technically. (laughs) So I'm also curious, you've got, your project is pretty successful. I mean, congrats to you on having ambition and having the technical expertise. I mean, just being, I, I thought you were younger. I didn't realize you were just out of high school young. That's amazing. And you've got 9.4 thousand stars on this, 260 forks. And so how has the community aspect of this worked out? Because you can have a great technical product. You can have something that checks all the boxes. You can even have something that when people use it, they recognize as better. But then reaching out to people is a completely different skill set than building something that meets a need. So how how is that 
community aspect gone? How have you gotten so many people involved with this and gotten such excitement around it? I think, first of all, first of all, I'm not like expert, an expert at all on this. Like, I am pretty bad at talking to people. Not only that, but also like trying to get people to be to do certain things or like try to use the product or give feedback on that or reaching out. But I think one of the main advantages with Million is that it's kind of like an exciting thing in the community where we haven't really seen... It's like kind of like a bun moment, if you, like the, the bun runtime moment where it's like, wow, okay, this is kind of crazy. And so there's a lot of initial excitement when people look at Million. But one of the things where have, like I've had struggled with was how do we... Like the thing is, I'm like our product is not stable. Like we, this is like really, really early. Like the initial version was in February or March. Um, and so there's like a lot of issues. So being Wait, able how, to, how did you get 10,000 uh, stars on this in three months? What? No, the current, what? the current rendition is, it was around like, I would say like 3.5 thousand stars in January. And it kind of like spiked up from there. So there was like initial. Yeah. What, how, how long was the original tail on this? That meaning, um, so there, with the hockey stick, you, you have like a long tail and then you have the moment of inflection and then you start to get exponential growth rather than linear growth. So I'm talking like, how long were you having slow linear growth before you hit that hockey stick in February? It started in June, 2021. So around a year prior. So 3.5 over. Still, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Are you active on like Reddit or Hacker News or what? How do people get the word about this thing? Yeah, kind of like everything. Mostly Twitter. I kind of post like stuff about Virtual Dom there. And so there's like a little bit of initial traction. Like every time we ship a feature, I tweet it. I'm like, hey, this is what we're building. And so the nice thing about it, that is a lot of the technical stuff we do also translates to kind of like marketing in a sense, where we're able to like attract more developers to use it. But it's... Yeah, like I was saying, it's it's there's a lot of hype. <laughs> it's mostly hype right now. And so we're right now what we really, really need to work on is how do we convert that hype into usage and then into you know continuous users. Well, my experience is that most of the people that are starting businesses seem to be in their 20s. And that may not be true. That may be skewed because of the circles that I'm around. Mm -hmm. But it seems like most of the people that are starting web businesses are college kids. And yeah. So in a lot of them, they get millions of dollars of investment and they get really nice, cushy customer bases from mid-sized businesses that need a, a SaaS niche filled. So I imagine you probably, even though it's it's not mature, there's probably a lot of products that aren't mature that use this. Do, do you know, is this in production with with some some startups that are also gaining traction or is it mostly just hobby projects what kind of usage are you seeing or do you know maybe you yeah. don't know it's definitely a lot of don't know but right now it's like i would say the composition is like 95 hobby projects and then 5% open or production the main production website we're on is a smart home company called wise w y z e and the only reason it's on production there is because I interned there. <laughs> so I was able to integrate into the thing. But yeah, it's yeah, it's it's been it's been a kind of a struggle. I've been trying to figure out ways to well, part of it is stability, right? But the other part is how do we get people to start using it instead of you know kind of converting that hype into usage. A big part of it is just having an option to let people pay you. That has been my mm -hmm. biggest mistake with my open source projects is I enjoy doing the project. And I see getting the payment as a chore and I don't implement the ability to let people pay. But if all you do is put up a open source version, three bullet points, commercial version, five bullet points, and it's the exact same code, you're just highlighting different features. You're mm -hmm. going to get people that will buy the commercial version just because when you have a business, there's a sense of, I need to be able to rely on this. And if I can pay for it, I have a sense of security that I can rely on it being there tomorrow. Whereas when something's free and unstable, it's like, well, I like this, but I don't know if it's going to be there tomorrow and it's not stable. So if the people who are working on it stop working on it, it's not going to work for me. I won't be able to get bugs fixed. I'm in deep trouble. So that's kind of where, from my perspective, my adoption is I don't, I try to not adopt things that are both unstable and unpaid. If it's paid and unstable, that's a better because it levels the playing field. 
or not necessarily that it must be paid, but that there's an option for me to pay. I've opened up so many GitHub issues where I said, can I pay you money? And if they say yes, I will pay them the money and I'll use it. And if they say no, I will look for something else. Gotcha. I never really thought about it. I do have like a GitHub sponsors open. It's just that I don't, yeah, I, I definitely feel you on that where it feels like receiving payment is more of a chore because you really enjoy, like I really enjoy working on the project there. Um, So yeah, definitely something to think about. And maybe you'll see like a enterprise version. <laughs> well, just, I, I don't know what your pricing model should be, but mm-hmm. I actually dislike enterprise. I like commercial. I don't like enterprise because enterprise is always exorbitantly priced. Yeah, right. And I, I want to pay 99 bucks or 30 bucks or 300 bucks, or if it's a, you know, if it's a really big deal, a thousand bucks, but I don't want to, I don't want to have to, you know, call or what, you know, that's, yeah. but that's, I have a very specific view on the world, but I think that a lot of people share that where it's like, just give me a simple pricing model. I just, <laughs> it's the peace of mind, right? Even yeah. if I only paid 10 bucks, although that probably seems a little low, but you know, even though I only paid 10 bucks, I have a peace of mind, like, okay, cool. This is getting funded, there is because time is money, right? Yeah. So if I'm spending money, I'm assuming that it's making time for you. So that's that's the kind of thing where, yeah. But I, I hope that I hope that you do, and I hope that's successful. I hope that drives some more business for you. Who knows? I'd, I'd love to, if you do it, I'd love to hear back on it if, it, if it works out or not. Yeah, I'll definitely reach out if I do, when I do. All right, well, I'm going to push us into picks and stuff like that. Yeah, we used to do a self-promo segment on, on this, but I just kind of folded it back into the picks just because, yeah, if you're working on something, just tell us about it in the picks. So anyway, let's Chuck, I think you've been giving us the disclaimer longer probably. Than you so I will I will quit giving the disclaimer uh. then fair <laughs> enough. Anyway, Steve, why don't you start us off with your picks? All righty. So let's bring up the dad jokes of the week which as I like to point out are the high point of any uh podcast episode that I'm on, right? So uh, the other day, uh, my son, he's about 20. And he is so he's getting to the point, maybe he's thinking about getting married and having kids later. And so at one point, he asked me what it was like to be a parent. And so I woke him up at two o'clock a.m. to tell him that my sock came off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry, delay on the drum, drum joke here. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't prepped. I was in a technical mindset and whatever this was. <laughs> Usually these aren't funny. What? That one was hilarious. Oh my gosh. You should have thrown up on him too. You know, there's a lot of people that laugh at my jokes, Chuck, just because you don't appreciate him as much as others, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. But what is the, explain it, explain it. What, what was the joke? Uh, explaining what it's like to be a parent. I don't know. Have you ever had your kids wake you up at two o'clock AM for some reason that that was just crazy? <gasps> Oh, <laughs> just yet. wait. So just wait. we've got a four-year-old. <laughs> the ages of your kids, I'm surprised. <laughs> we've got a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and I can sleep through the train that goes by in the night. I can sleep through my son yelling at the top of his lungs. I can sleep through a lot of things, but they've not they've not come into the room in the middle of the night yet. Consider yourself fortunate. Yep. Okay. All right. Now I know I didn't get it. When my kids and were I, younger, I, when my kids were younger for a while, I could have sworn they were going to be potheads because they kept waking me up at four twenty every morning. I mean, literally <laughs> four twenty, they were waking up, and I don't know what it was about that time. It had me worried, but they turned out okay. So, so did you know that there was a Roman emperor who never aged after he turned nineteen? His name was Constantine. And then uh, speaking on more of a, a tech level, I, one of my jobs, you know, I've talked about jobs where I've had, where I've gotten fired before, like the time I gave a, my seat to a lady on the bus and I'd lost my job as a bus driver type thing. But anyway, another job that I used to have, I used to be a programmer. I worked on autocorrect, but they fried me for no reason. So those are my picks. All right. AJ, what are your picks? I'd like to point out those for those not watching the video that uh, Aiden is really laughing quite hard. So I'm glad he appreciates my humor. <laughs> I'm also glad that someone appreciates you. You know, they say that 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 I think you brought this up before. The 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 kids that get a lot of dad jokes turn out more well socially adjusted, able to handle things like constant embarrassment exactly. with their peers. Yep. There was an article I picked one time, I'd have to go back and dig it up, that talked about exactly that and, and why the kids like the dad jokes and they can handle abuse and, and embarrassment much easier because they're so used to it. Yeah, and that's... That's good. I've got to get my repertoire up to speed with my kiddos. Speaking of which, that's what I'll pick. I'll pick my kiddos because I'm just there. They are at such wonderful ages right now. My daughter's four. My son's one and a half. 
my son is just the biggest troublemaker. If there's anything that can be, and he's so smart and resourceful, he can stack things on top of each other to reach anything in any place. He, I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible, but he's such a lovable little guy. And I just, and even when he gets into trouble, he's just got this beautiful smile where he's just, it, you need to stay mad at him and give him a stern look, but you can't do it for more than about three or four seconds. Me and my wife are both having this problem where no matter what trouble he causes, we just can't stay upset with him. He's just so adorable. And and then my daughter is just, she's in the phase that my wife is totally nonplussed about <laughs> Uh, perhaps less than nonplussed, but she asks questions about everything. You know, she's in the recursive why phase where at the end of the, you know, eventually I just have to ask her, well, why don't you know? Because <laughs> yeah, she gets to a point where I can't answer it anymore. It's like, why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? Why don't you like it? That's that's the one that's the weirdest. Why don't you like it? Like, that, stop, stop doing that, please. Why? Well, I don't like it. Why don't you like it? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Does anybody know how, how do you answer? Why don't you like it? It's not my preference. I don't know. I don't, you know, so there's some of those where she stumps me. <laughs> so just really, really enjoying time with the kiddos. We've, we've been checking the mail on the four wheeler every single day, even, even Sunday and holidays. Cause they don't quite grasp that we can be sure the mail doesn't come, but we go that then it's really weird. We don't have a mailbox at the end of our driveway. We have a, community mailbox at the end of the street which is weird because it's houses but whatever but it's great because we get to go down and and then sometimes we get to say hi to some of the neighbors or the neighbor kids as we we go around the block and whatnot so it's just it's a good life and earlier to the point we're talking about you know being more liberal versus being more conservative i think everybody becomes an instant conservative once you have kids when you once you're trying to protect what you have and ensure that that they have as good of a life or better than you had, hopefully without experiencing the same number of hardships that you had to experience. It's uh, and, and I wish that everybody, well, I know that not everybody wants kids and I don't think that everybody should have kids thrust upon them, but I, I hope that everybody that's open to it gets the opportunity to to have kids and and to get resources to help them to be a, a, a great parent, whether that's through family or counseling or books or whatever, because it's frustrating and it's rewarding. And it's I think it's one of the great aspects of life. Yeah, I'm sure Chuck would agree, but I can say my kids are probably one of the best things that's happened to me. Yeah, mine keep happening to me too. <laughs> no, it's it is. It's true. It's definitely true. So you know, there's ways to control that, right, Chuck? Just saying. Well, yeah. Well, we haven't had a child in almost eight years, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you're doing we okay. got that figured okay. out. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I guess it's my turn for picks. So I'll, I'll throw out a few picks. I had a board game pick, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was. So I'm just going to go to one of the ones that I really love. This one's out of print. It's called Shadow Hunters. You can go find it. It just costs a little bit more. So I'm going to pick it. I guess the other game that I should pick, this is the one that uh, when my sister comes over, she likes to play, is... Uh, legendary and there are a whole bunch of it this is marvel legendary it has a whole bunch of uh add-ons you can pull in so it's got like the hulk add-on and the thor add-on and stuff like that so marvel legendary and i actually wrote an app uh react native app that allowed you to randomly select different characters from different expansions you just tell it which expansions you want to use and then it will spin up a game and randomly pick your villain and stuff it has a board game geek weight of 2.43 and so it's a little bit complicated a little more complicated than kind of your average casual game but it's not so involved that you couldn't play it It, it's a lot of fun rounds take about an hour and yeah three or four people seem to seems to be the ideal you can play it with one player you can play it all the way up to five players and yeah you're effectively trying to get enough hits on the villain before the scheme is completed or you run out of people in the villain deck but it's it's fun. It's a deck building game if you're looking for a good deck builder. And then for my other picks, so last week I was in Amsterdam for JS Nation and JS Nation React Summit. They're both put on by an organization called Git Nation. They must be based there because a lot of their events are held in Amsterdam. But they were fun. They were really great events. So if you're looking for a conference to go to next year, definitely check them out. And a good chunk of the conference was online. So even if you can't make it to Amsterdam for whatever reason, you know, check out their online portions. 
So, you know, for example, it's pretty expensive to fly there from here. So, yeah, for whatever reason. Well, some people can't travel because they have family commitments or what have you. So, what whatever your reasons are, yeah. But Amsterdam was a cool city. One thing I figured out because I wanted to go see the Anne Frank house because I, I read the book in like fourth grade, the diary of Anne Frank. And my wife and I, my wife much more than I, we really are kind of interested in World War II history. And so it would have been fun. You have to get those tickets like months in advance. And it, I didn't know that. So that's like the only thing in Amsterdam I didn't really have time to see that I wanted to see. I did get to see the uh, Dutch Resistance Museum or the Verzitz Museum. And that was cool. And they kind of talk about a lot of the people and, you know, kind of the newspapers and how they did stuff under, hid what they were doing and, you know, how they convinced people to hide Jews. And anyway, it was really, really interesting to go to. They also have, so Rem, Rembrandt Van Rijn, he's the uh, the painter, Rembrandt. So most, most painters, uh, you know their last name with Rembrandt, you know his first name. But they redid his house in kind of the historical thing a historical way so you get to walk through and kind of imagine what it was like three four hundred years ago when he was painting and that was really cool so i'm gonna pick that as well the rembrandt house museum what else did i get to see hey chuck have you ever read the hiding place i think so so i talked to it about it a little while ago because my son and i just read through it again and it's it's about a gal named Corey oh yes who was dutch lived in I forget her name but her and her family hid Jews during the war and they ended up being arrested her and, her, and they were all sent to concentration mm-hmm. camps. She survived, her sister didn't, and she was a prolific speaker for years into the 1980s until she died. But it's along the mm-hmm. same lines and it's really quite a fascinating Yeah, story. Yeah, there's so much. You can go as deep as you want in that area and there are so many inspiring stories. You know, uh, the other one that comes to mind is the As a Man Thinketh, I think is what it's called. Maybe not. Anyway, it's, but it's another book by another concentration camp survivor who talks about how mindset in the concentration camp seemed to be the way that people got through it. And I, I don't know that we can completely fathom what it was like to be there on, on either side, to be honest, the, the Germans or the, the Dutch or the French or whoever. But yeah, my, and it's interesting because my grandmother and my great grandparents left, left France a few years before the Nazis invaded. So but my great grandfather, he was somewhat sympathetic to some of the ideas they were putting out there. I, I don't know that necessarily the extermination of the Jews, but some of the other political ideals that they had. And so uh, he actually wound up going back to France during that. My great grandmother and my grandma and her sister actually left left him. And uh, anyway, so it's is the, there's some interesting family history for me there. But anyway, it's also interesting to think, you know what, if I had been brought up in a country that was raised on some of these ideas, you know, would I have been the kind of person to, you know, stand up to those ideas and recognize them for what they were or not? And I don't know that anybody really has those answers. But at the same time, then it's how do I begin to recognize truth and do what's right? And that's what really fascinates me is the philosophical, okay, well, I don't live in that time, but how do I make sure my time isn't like that time? So... Anyway, but yeah, so lots of stuff there. The city was actually really great to just walk around in. The conference paid for us to do a canal tour because there are canals around the main, the like the main part of town. And that was that was super fun. So anyway, I'm going to pick Amsterdam as a city. And I'm going to just kind of say a thanks to JS Nation to React Summit. We will also have some podcast episodes coming out that I recorded while I was there. So all in all, good stuff. I'm just trying to think what else I want to pick, but I guess I can save it. Next week, I won't be here, but the week after that, uh, we'll definitely have some picks. Aiden, do you have some picks? you have some things you want to shout out about? Sure, yeah. I guess I can pick this podcast. This is like kind of cool because my morning drives to school are generally, I don't have anything playing, but I've recently just like going on Spotify and just clicking on this podcast and listening to you guys talk. So it's really cool to be on here and maybe I'll hear myself next week. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. How about you, Toby? No, it's like, I like you were just talking about like Amsterdam and all the history. I'm just like, yeah, this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, I'm glad we uh, provide you what you're looking for there. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here then. Thanks for coming, guys. This was awesome. And until next time, folks, Max out. Adios.